by the way, wine is another example. So you, you brought this bottle of wine. Let's just assume it's a cheap wine. Uh, <laughs> Fair? That'd be correct. <laughs> yes. Depends how you... Depends what you... It's yeah. fine. It's good Australian good wine. For, good for us. We haven't, we haven't adapted too high yet. So. Yeah. That's right. No, but it's a, good, it's a good strategy, right? And you start buying expensive wine, soon enough you're not getting necessarily more pleasure from it. You just get used to a different level. So, so here, here to cheap wines. Yeah, cheers. L'chaim. <laughs> Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Dan Ariely, the absolute legend. Absolute legend, mate. So some of his, he's a behavioral economist, which we'll talk about during the show. Books include Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Rationality, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, and a brand new one, Dollars and Cents. He's got a Netflix doco called Dishonest, which is phenomenal, definitely worth a watch. Heaps of TED Talks. Hmm. He's a jet. Absolute jet, man. This would be my favorite interview we've done, I'd say. Yes, we were, in, we were with him, sitting next to him. Uh, he turned our not great questions into phenomenal answers. Um, <laughs> smashed a kebab in about three and a half bites afterwards as well. Yeah, and just enjoyed the ballet. <laughs> I love the ballet. Just an absolute weapon of a man. <laughs> um, he was sick. Uh, so good. Yeah, hope you guys enjoy it like we did. Here is Dan Ariely, the absolute man. Danny! <laughs> Dan Ariely, where do we start? The author of many books and a brand new one. Where do we start? We're in a beautiful uh, place looking at, uh, what is this, Darling Bay, it's called, I think? Darling Harbour. 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 Mm. Uh, really beautiful. I've been here for a few hours. Yeah. It's, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> Straight yeah. from Mexico, giving drunk presentations. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. um, but obviously, uh, books like Predictably Rational, Upside of Rationality, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. How, how did you get interested in becoming... Uh, a behavioral economist. So, um, actually, I didn't think about writing books uh, yeah. at all. Um, and my my interest was very applied. So, as you know, I was uh, injured when I was uh, relatively young. And I w- when I was in hospital, I, I saw lots of things I didn't like as a patient. Mm. Uh, maybe the first one was the question of how do nurses remove bandages from burn patients. Mm. So, imagine you have a choice. And somebody can either rip the bandages off quickly as possible or take them off slowly. Which one do people prefer? And uh, most people say they prefer the quick one. Mm. Uh, I think uh, women uh, use how they think about waxing their legs as an intuition (laughs) about what what to do. Men think about removing plasters. But it turns out that if you have really deep wounds and Mm. if it's going to take an hour to take them, that's not the right approach. Mm. Um, But but the nurses were sure that the ripping approach was right and uh, I didn't like that approach and and yeah. my whole my whole starting point was about let's look at all the things that we do wrongly let's mm. let's look at w- the places where intuitions are um, pointing mm. out in the right in the wrong direction because you see with the nurses in the in the burn department thought that their approach the ripping approach was the right approach and it took me a long time to study it to realize that they were not correct right in mm. the beginning it was just my intuition of against theirs and they were experts and I, I was just, you know, one person. Um, and, and it turns out that nurses are not the only people that have wrong intuitions. Mm. There's lots of cases where we think, let's follow our gut intuition and this is the right approach to serve ourselves, our clients, mm. our stakeholders, mm. whatever it is, and that's the right approach, but, but it's wrong. And I am basically concerned with human waste. Mm. 
Yes. I think about waste around yes. the way we waste our time, our money, our health, the, the environment, um, hate. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to. And, and all the places where we make the wrong uh, decisions. And mm. if we understand them better, then we can come up with mechanisms to mm. do things in a better way. That's my basic approach. So I'm not like a, a real scientist. Mm-hmm. I'm a scientist, right, by, by profession. But, uh, but it's not that I have like one topic that I want to study for the next mm-hmm. 30 years. I just want to improve the way we live a little bit. Nice. Yeah. nice. And so I guess the, the first book, Predictably Irrational, is that uh, econ- economics, which I did at university, says everybody's rational. They wipe all the costs, all the benefits, and make the most rational choice based on that. Uh, you said that's very much not true. That's irrational, but we're irrational in predictable ways. Yes. So I guess one of the things I liked was that the relativity chapter, mm-hmm. which I think maybe why Adam's teamed up with me in that looking for uh, girls, the A, the A minus, the B. Oh, and then you got a tall white guy is, and a short is. Asian guy. <laughs> yeah. It's tough to uh, distinguish. They're two very different, but if you've got two tall white guys and one's a little bit better, it's easier to choose. Yeah, it's Are you saying well. he's only a little bit better? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Spot on, Dan. <laughs> so, um, so relativity turns out to be a general strategy of the brain. Right, mm-hmm. so it's all the way from visual illusions, right? You remember this illusion mm-hmm. when you have two circles, one surrounded by little circles, one surrounded by large circles. Mm-hmm. The one surrounded by little circle looks bigger mm-hmm. in comparison. Uh, it it works on food. I don't know if you know this uh, experiment with the soup bowl. Uh, yes, uh, right, Brian Weinstein. Exactly. So yeah. so you have one condition: you give people soup and they eat the soup, and you say you want more soup, and they say no. Mm-hmm. You have a second condition: you give people the same amount of soup. But they don't know it, but the bottom of the soup bowl is connected to a hose and yeah. it's connected to a big vat of soup. And as people eat soup, you push a little bit more soup <laughs> in and you always push it slower than they eat. So mm-hmm. it goes down, but you know, it doesn't go up <laughs> the, the amount of soup, but it goes down slower than it should. Mm. And people eat 72% more soup. Wow. And you, and you stop them because you know, it's an endless soup bowl. <laughs> and, and you say, okay, stop now and say, you, are you still hungry? And people say, yes, I haven't finished my soup. <laughs> and... And what it means is that we compare the soup to, um, not to the absolute amount of soup, mm. but to the bowl, right? Mm. So we compare things in, in relative ways to, to everything, including attractiveness <laughs> yep. and including money, mm. right? So think about kind of the classic experiment or study. Uh, you, go, you go to a store and you're buying a pen, and mm-hmm. the pen is $15. Mm-hmm. And the... Uh, the person that, as you check out, the person said, hey, just so you know, there's another store three blocks down, belongs to the same chain. They have a sale on this pen. Instead of $15, it's $5, $10 less, mm-hmm. right? And you say, if you want, go ahead and buy it. It's the same chain. Mm-hmm. Most people go. I mean, mm-hmm. the vast majority of people say, how can I give up an option <laughs> three blocks to, to save $10? $10. Example number two, you go, you buy an Armani suit. It's $1,015. The mm-hmm. salesperson said, hey, by the way, we have a sister store, the same chain, everything. They're selling this same exact suit on discount. Instead of 1015 it's 1005 <laughs> Would you walk three blocks? And most people say, yeah. how could you not? And even the very stingy, even the people who said, yes, I will walk uh, in both cases, don't feel the same, right? Mm-hmm. The first one feels two-thirds. How can yeah. you not walk? The, the mm-hmm. second one feels like a tiny percentage. Yeah. But the reality is your bank account doesn't care mm. where the $10 come from. If mm. it's coming from a $15 pen or it's coming from a $1,015 suit, $10 is $10. Yeah. But we think in relative ways. And actually, it's a, 
it's a general strategy that the, the brain uses, not always rational, yeah. but it's a very general mechanism. Yeah, mm. nice. Another thing you um, you talk about in one of your books is is procrastination, and I think that's something you know we'd all probably try and eliminate from our lives. But so, why do we procrastinate, and and how can we, I guess, stop doing? Yeah, so procrastination is a, is a general problem about short term versus long term. Mm. Um, so so think to yourself, um, in the last month, uh, have you eaten more than you think you should? Yes. <laughs> yes. Exercise less than you think you should. Yes. Um, <laughs> texted while driving. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, not always wash your hands when you left the bathroom. Only if there's um, no. it depends who's watching. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. It's 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 actually something that people don't do, but really are mm. much more embarrassed. It's much more embarrassing to admit <laughs> than when you text and drive, right? Even yeah. though it's not yeah. that dangerous, and you can go on and on, right? Unsafe mm. sex, all all kinds of things like that. And and the reality is that with everything that has with short term gratification versus mm. long term benefit, we we don't do it well. Mm. Yeah. And here's a very general example. Imagine I had the best chocolate in the world. And I said, you could have half a box now or a full box in a week. Half mm. now. And I kind of passed it around. So you could see it. You could smell it. Most people say, not worth waiting another week yeah. for a full box. I'll take the half box now. Mm. Case number two, I said, what would you rather have? A half a box of chocolate in a year or a full box of chocolate in a year in a week? Mm. It's the same question. Is it worthwhile waiting another week for another half a box of chocolate? But now people say, of course it is, right? <laughs> yeah. Because in the future, we're wonderful people. We would exercise, we would diet, we'll take our medication. The future is full of just wonders. We don't get to live in that future, mm. right? We get to have good plans about the future, but in the present, we fail time after time after time. Yeah. It's because the present is tempting us in a very mm. different way. So if I say... Half a box of chocolate in a year, a full box of chocolate in a year in a week. You're not, none of them has temptation. You're yeah. thinking rationally about it. When I say half a box of chocolate now, and you could see it, and you could smell it, mm. emotion basically mm. get invoked. And mm. now giving up something that you feel emotional about is very, very difficult. Yeah. Mm. And, and that's the basic issue with procrastination. In principle, we know what we want to do, but in the short term, we're tempted by all kinds of things, how to use our money, how to use our yes. time, and, and so on. And um, what about, at the, I guess, at the, the, the global level and how we're looking to the short-term gratification? Is this, do you think this is why, I guess, some of the problems in the world, like global warming, you know, exploiting the world's resources and just, you know, the short-term gains and, and not thinking about the, the future, you know, future assets we need to have? Absolutely. So, so the first thing to realize is that we as human beings are not designed to think long term. Yeah. Right? That's the mm. first thing. The, the next thing to realize is that the systems that we have created are almost by design designed to take advantage of that. Mm. So, so think about a, a, the capitalistic system who is worried about quarterly earnings. Mm. Right? And one of the principles in behavioral economics is that we make decisions as a function of the environment that we're in. Yeah. Now, who in your environment cares about your long-term well-being? Other than ourselves? Pretty much no one. And, and even you. But, you know, maybe a parent, maybe a significant other. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, maybe religion. I mean, there's some mm. entities, but, yeah. but mostly every app you have on your phone want something from you in the short term. Mm -hmm. mm. Every store wanted to spend something now. So basically, you can have an image of yourself walking around the streets with your time, money, mm. and attention, 
yeah. everybody wants a piece of you. <laughs> and, and they want a piece of you now, yeah. right? So, so you can say evolutionary, an orange tree doesn't really care about you that much, mm. right? But, but evolutionary, when you have other players that are trying to maximize their short-term mm. quarterly earnings, basically they all compete for our time, money, and and attention, and, and they design the environment in a way that would get us to fail. So if you think about the regular supermarket, a supermarket is not a natural entity. Mm. It's designed to get you to walk in there, and then once you're in there, to spend as much money uh, as possible. A restaurant uh, is not just something that is happens. <laughs> yeah. they, they are basically designing the mm. menu, and the language of the waiters, you know, mm. lots of things to get you to, to basically spend, spend more money. So... And, and imagine that you're a company and you have two ways to convince people to buy from you. One is to appeal to people's logic. The other one is to appeal to their emotions. Mm -hmm. Which one is the easier one? Easy emotions. One. Yeah. The emotional one, right. <laughs> yeah. Why? So, so if you think about emotions, emotions are kind of these programs that are designed by nature. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, you walk at the end of the jungle 10,000 years ago, you see a shadow of a tiger. Nature wants you to run away. You mm -hmm. don't want to take out an Excel spreadsheet and start <laughs> <laughs> right. the cost and benefit. Should I stay? Yeah. No, <laughs> run. <laughs> so emotions are a kind of executable program that basically are ignited by something else and gets us to act in almost in a pre-programmed way. Not not always mm -hmm. perfectly, but but that's that's the general approach, Right. So you see something you want to eat. You see something you want to procreate. Whatever yeah. it is, attract it or run, run or get close. Um, and it's a really good way to create, to create craving. So, so if you think about, you know, in this room, I had some potato chips here. Um, you know, if you think about potato chips, we are designing potato chips to get people to eat one and then to have a combination of salt and sugar to get you to eat mm -hmm. another one, another one, another one. So, so A... We're not designed to think about long-term. <laughs> yeah. And B, the environment that we have created is yeah. getting the worst of us. There, there was a really sad study that asked the question, this was uh, in the U.S., what percentage of mortality is either caused by or accelerated by bad decisions, right? So mm -hmm. driving drunk and killing yourself is one example, but, you know, smoking. I mean, mm -hmm. there's lots of other things as well. And what they estimated was that 100 years ago, it was less than 10%. Think about 100 years ago, how could yeah. you make a bad decision that would kill you? Mm. And now, or at least a few years ago, it was 44%. What wow. happened? It's not that we got more stupid, but we designed lots of technologies that kill us, yeah. right? <laughs> Obesity, <laughs> diabetes, yeah. texting while driving, smoking, all of those things. Mm. And you could say some of those technologies are amazing. Like if you think mm. about the donut, mm. right? The donut is a way to pack tremendous amount of sugar and fat in a very, very small <laughs> container. <laughs> If you could only give a little bit of it to kids in Africa, that would be amazing. Yeah. But, of course, that's not what we use it. We give, we give big amounts to people who don't, who don't really need them. So, so one of the questions I think we need to ask ourselves and is so central to behavioral economics is what environments do we build? And, and here there's a really interesting distinction between physical environments and mental environments. Mm. So if you think about this room... We have sofas, we have cushions, we have air conditioning. I mean, we, we design lots of things to make it easy for us, mm. right? Uh, you came on an elevator. I mean, mm. uh, we all came on I mean, there's lots of things that we design to, to overcome our physical limitations. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if we were Superman, right, none yeah. of this would be needed, right? <laughs> yeah. The temperature wouldn't matter. The, the window here, the, we don't need sofas, right? We could just sit in the air. But, but we design all of those things 
to make our physical environment more comfortable because we see how if it's not comfortable, mm. it would not work out. What about the mental world, right? What mm. are we designing to help ourselves pre- perform better in the mental world? And the answer is not that much. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I love it. So is there a, a way we, we talked about you know, procrastination and that whether that's eating more to satisfy our cravings now rather than wait, knowing that if we don't eat this, maybe in 10 years we're going to be fit yep. and sexy or same with exercising or same with saving money that rather than spending money now, we can save it for the future and buy, I don't know, something else in the, in the future. Is, is there a way to combat that? And as you say, build these mental models that try and, even though you, you, know, even though you said that everybody has these limitations of taking that instant gratification, is it possible? Do we have hope? It is, it is possible, but it's about designing better systems. Mm. So, you know, one of the challenges with behavioral economics is how do we think about free will? Mm. And we, so imagine I came to your house every morning with a tray of fresh donuts and croissants. Mm. How healthy would you be at the end of that year? Not very less. healthy. Not, much less. Less, less healthy, right? <laughs> much less. But so, so once, once I show up with this tray, you would be less healthy, but you don't have... We don't have to design the world like this, right? Mm-hmm. So, so human free will is not in our ability to resist temptation when it shows up. It's about designing systems that don't, don't tempt us. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in Australia, my understanding is that you have a retirement savings where people take 9% mm-hmm. of yeah. your salary and put it in, in savings. Yep. That's an amazing thing, <laughs> right? You could say... <laughs> we wouldn't do it otherwise. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> no. what? So, so it's about... And, and this is a design of a system, mm. right? And... You could say, let people make their own decisions. People are rational. They know what they're doing. Let's pay people 9% more. Yeah. And people make could choose at the end of yeah. this month, at mm. the end of each month, people could choose how much they want to yeah. put in, in retirement savings. Or you could say, let's not even bother people mm. with that and let's make a – it's a very paternalistic perspective, mm. right? But, mm. but I'll tell you something else. As the world is becoming more complex, I think we need more paternalism. Mm. So, so think about the world in which saving is really complex, right? Mm. All of a sudden, our life expectancy has increased. The cost of um, mm. healthcare mm. has increased. Uh, how can we ask each person in society to figure out for themselves the future costs of uh, housing and healthcare and the mm. expected longevity? Really tough. And, and it's not just health that is become, um, uh, money becoming more complex. Health is becoming Mm. Uh, more complex and education is becoming more complex I don't know how it is here but uh, uh, our son uh, just went to high school mm-hmm. my wife spent I don't know maybe a thousand hours trying to figure out uh, <laughs> high school, right school. Yeah. here do you have a choice between high schools yeah. yeah yeah definitely so when I grew up I grew up in Israel there was just one high school yeah. you know <laughs> the, the, the amount of effort you had to choose which high school you go to was zero yeah. was just, just as it this is where you go all of a sudden, there are 17 different high schools, all with different varying level of uh, complexities, and, and to figure out which one it is. So as the world is becoming more complex with health, money, education, everything, all of a sudden, we need, we need to really spend a lot of time on this, on this work. And yeah. I think it's just not fair. Mm. Um, so, so think about Homer Simpson, right? Yes. And imagine we designed the world for Homer Simpson. Mm-hmm. Right? How much, how much decisions do we want to give Homer Simpson in terms <laughs> not, of, of not controlling the nuclear no, power plant? That's, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, not much, and and I don't mean it because I think people are stupid. I, mm. I really don't think so. Mm. But I mean it because people are busy. Mm. 
Mm. People have their own lives and they have their own jobs and they have mm. bills and kids and family and all mm. kinds of issues. And I think we should, we should realize that for some of the decisions that we, people just don't have time. Mm. Right? People just don't have time. And because of that, we should design systems that basically are almost guaranteeing that, that we would behave much better. And it means restricting uh, our ability to fail. Mm-hmm. As you say, that, uh, I was just looking for the quote from Predictably Rational I took down. Thinking is difficult and sometimes unpleasant. And that's why we have all these shortcuts with the relativity or the hurting or the self-hurting, all these yeah. shortcuts. And as you say, that as the world gets more complex... Uh, and there's more decisions, more choices to make. Possibly there's more reasons we're going to be looking for shortcuts and therefore make the wrong decisions. That's right. Is that sort of why we need that? more rules, more paternalism? And, yep. and that's sort of, I, as you said, that's sort of where we're, we're heading, where there's just yep. more and more technology and everything's changing that there's more and more choices that need to be made and more and more distractions on us. Yeah. And, and it's good to kind of separate paternalism from rules. And uh, rules are actually also very helpful. Mm-hmm. So... Um, uh, personal rules, right? So, mm. so think about diets. Mm. Um, diets are really hard to to keep because it's always another forkful, right? When exactly yes. do you stop? <laughs> yes. Right. I'll eat only half of that <laughs> cake, right? How does that exactly yeah. <laughs> exactly work? <laughs> but but in diets, uh, it's it's helpful if you have a very strict rule, like if you say no bread or no dessert yes. or no something. Uh, now I know we're drinking wine, but it's it's like <laughs> Alcoholic Anonymous. Right? I'll, I'll I'll pour some as well for myself. But you know, um, I'm sure. I mean, this is Australia. I'm sure you have Alcoholic Anonymous here. Oh yeah, uh, yes, yes. I've <laughs> never been, but uh, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, so so Alcoholic Anonymous. Think about them. They create a very strict rule. They say no drinking mm. whatsoever. You could say, why not say? Half a drink a day is fine. Yeah, and that's the rule. Yeah, that's right. Because if if that was the rule, you know what will happen, right? There'll be a market for really big glasses, yeah. <laughs> and and people and yes. people would say, "Oh, I'm not drinking in two weeks. I'll drink yeah. now." That you know, we will trick ourselves. Yeah. We will trick <laughs> yeah. ourselves. Yeah. So, so rules are helpful because we know at each point where we are. There's mm-hmm. no ambiguity. Just when there weeks. is ambiguity, we yeah. we we uh, betray ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Uh, when there is there mm. is ambiguity, so creating rules very healthy way mm. to to uh, push us toward making better decisions. Something I've struggled with a long time, Dan, is is coffee. I was, you know, for about two years, I'd get up to six coffees a day, and then I'd say, no, I'm going to have one. You know, I'm going to stay at one, and then I kept rationalising to myself two, three, mm-hmm. and then I kept, you know, going back up to six. <laughs> and just two weeks ago, I quit coffee for good. You know, made the rule, and I think it's the only way to do it. Yeah, so so no coffee at all is the easiest rule. Yeah, mm. right. It's the easiest rule, and um, and of course, one coffee uh, tempts you to get the the next one. Mm. Now you might be able to keep um, another rule, right? So you could say, I only have coffee when I'm home, yeah. mm-hmm. right? So this will kind of guarantee that you have one before you go to the office. But uh, all of those rules are more complex than the one that says no coffee mm-hmm. whatsoever. Yeah. So, is there any other other rules to help motivate us, or anything like that, that you think might be, you know, very useful for some of our listeners? So, uh, so, so I don't know what what's your demographic and challenges and so on. But but if we go back to procrastination, mm. one one of the challenges of procrastination is things like Facebook mm. and YouTube and Twitter that basically tempts you to 
Facebook is not trying to optimize your long-term productivity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so now the question is, what, what can you do? So uh, one thing to do is just turn off notifications, yeah. right? So, so mostly um, um, I, uh, on my phone, I basically put it on do not disturb mode, mm. uh, which means I don't get phone calls. I, I don't get nothing, mm, anything, awesome. right? Yeah. Now, that's very extreme, right? And it's a little bit arrogant <laughs> to say, you know, you want to get to me, <laughs> uh, you know, you'll, you'll get to my answering machine. You, you never get to interrupt me. Yeah. Um, and it, it's kind of an arrogant uh, perspective, but, but, but I think it's, it's my time, mm. right? And the odds that when you want to reach me with whatever email, text, mm. uh, it's the right time for me is very, very low. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. So, um, but of course, it means I'll get back to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When it's good um, for us. When it's good for yeah. But, but um, th- that's that's an important uh, one one step. So I'm not recommending do it completely, but but mm-hmm. control your notifications, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think um, here I'll ask you: um, use what email, text, tweet, app, yep, uh, all WhatsApp, those. all yeah. of those things. Yeah. How often do you check your email? For me, too often. But how often? Yeah. <laughs> like oh. once every hour? Yeah, I'd say that. Maybe even more frequently. So mm. let's, say, let's say once every hour, right? Mm. How many emails? So every hour you go, yeah. right? It doesn't need to push. You go there, right? Mm. Yes. Yeah. How many emails you get? What percentage of the email you get? Um, you would miss something if you checked it on a less than an hourly, ba- on a, uh, less than an hourly basis. Probably, probably 10%. Ten percent. That high? I think that's high. Yeah. Yeah. You think you think that ten percent? You need to respond within an be, hour. With before before an hour. Oh, oh no! no, no. <laughs> no one. Yeah. Sorry. One percent. <laughs> Probably less, right? Probably if, less, if we totally. if we now we can we can do a simple exercise and look at your email and say how <laughs> how many of those emails, if you answered if you didn't check it more than frequently in an hour something would go wrong. Oh yeah. Right. It's very very close to zero. Yeah. And we could do the same thing about. Uh, all the other things. So if you go and check email every hour, and every hour is basically good, yeah, <laughs> you know there should be no <laughs> notification. Yeah. Classes, yeah. And and the same thing is true for everything else, mm. right? Because once you check one, there's a good chance you'll check another, and so on. So, so I think one simple advice is, don't let the devices control you. And by the way, the studies on notifications are frightening, as you, as you probably know. Um, when you when we switch tasks, let's say you're working on some, you're writing something, and you switch to Facebook, mm. and you switch back, you're not truly back for 15 minutes after you're back, mm. right? Well, it takes because yeah. uh, your brain is kind of still processing a little yeah. bit of Facebook. You're not still still mm. in growth. So, task switching is not something we do we do well. So notifications are very expensive. There was a study, a beautiful study that showed that you you take undergrads and you pay them to solve math problems. And then you ask them to put their phone on the side, and from time to time you call them or text them. <laughs> and you see their performance on the math goes down, not just the moment there's the text, it yeah. takes a while for them to, to go back up. Oh, yeah. Right? So, so you keep on thinking, oh, what is this amazing text? It's probably... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, so they didn't check it. They just heard the notification oh, yeah, that's right, and, exactly. and were thinking, what is it? Oh, wow. That's right. Crazy. Uh, imagine <laughs> oh, wow. I told you right now, you, you, your, your phone just... <laughs> texted right you start yeah. thinking like who could that be it must be exciting right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know you know the notion of random reinforcement right so bf skinner showed random reinforcement he showed that when you take a rat 
And every 100 times you give them a pellet of food, that's exciting. But if it's a random number between 1 and 200, then the rat keeps on checking and checking and checking and checking much, much faster. Mm -hmm. And doesn't stop even when the reward goes away. And I think that's what most social media Mm. and and email is, right? It's random reinforcement. It's mostly uninteresting. But from time to time, it's really exciting. (laughs) And that that keeps us going. So that's one thing is control your notification. And I I used to do a more extreme strategy. I used to have two laptops, two computers actually in my office. Uh, One had nothing but work and Mm. one had other things yeah, and and that made the mm. switching from one to another much more clear because one of the issues is right now it's all in one place mm. right it's it's the same as like having a phone that does both ways for driving and texting you know you you yeah. put it onto one yeah. <laughs> like you know like yeah. i wish we had navigation that wasn't in our phone mm. right i think we could have under those conditions we could have learned not to touch our phones yeah when we drive but when you put your phone into drive and you you start getting tempted to do it, mm. it it's really easy to do more so um so control notifications control your work environment mm. right make make the switches deliberate and then another one is to take the precious hours that we f- can focus on highly and make sure you use them correctly. So um, mm. how many hours a day when you work do you think you're actually productive? Like imagine I took your whole work day. Yeah. And I said, how many minutes are you truly productive? What, what do you think it is? I'd say for me, 60 minutes. 60 minutes? 60 minutes or two hours. 60 I was going to go a little bit higher, but maybe I was just overestimating. Uh, truly yeah. productive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I would be surprised if you get more than 60 minutes. Yeah, Actually, well. for most people, I think it's not. So here's, yeah. here's an example. Um, imagine that you wrote 750 words a day. You were trying to write books, mm-hmm. and you wrote 750 words a day. Um, how many books a year would you write? Are they 750 good words? You don't have to cut down? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying to do the numbers in my head. <laughs> so so a, an average book is 7, uh, 75,000 words, right? Mm-hmm. So it means that every 100 days you would write Three a book. Books. Yeah. 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 Very few people get to this productivity. Yeah. Right? In fact, if you... Now, 750 now, words is what? Maybe two paragraphs? Yeah. yeah. It doesn't sound like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but but we, almost, we almost never get there. Yeah. Right? Because we either wait for muse to strike or mm. we, have, we have temptation and so on. So, so you know, if you get to the office, and most people are productive for the first few hours of the day, if you get to the office and you basically don't start mm. Facebook, Twitter, and so mm. on, and you just pick the thing you want to work on and you just work on it for half an hour, mm-hmm. you'll be shocked by how much your productivity is increasing. Um, I don't know if you fly a lot, but lots of people who fly say that they, their productive hours is on flights. Mm. That's just a no terrible, that's just like <laughs> such an awful thing to say because, <laughs> because you're sitting in this uncomfortable seat yeah. shaking and you're saying that's the most productive <laughs> thing. Right. But, but it's about not having distractions, right? And mm. now we, of course, add Wi-Fi to, mm. to flights and now we're taking that, that, <laughs> that productive time yeah. as well. <laughs> so, so I would say controlling notification is number one control your work mm. environment, realize the task switching is really costly. You want mm. to take a break? Close your eyes yeah. and, and meditate or cl- do something. Facebook is not equal not rest. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> it's not, not a mental break, even though you think it might be. And then 
Mm. Pick your productive hours for most people in the morning, but you might not be might not be for you, and protect them. Mm-hmm. We don't have that many productive hours, mm. so there's lots of hours that you could futz around and answer to emails and, and check mm. YouTube and so on. The, the productive hours are things to keep sacred. Yeah. Nice. I think um, you, so. Obviously, you got your new brand brand new book, Dollars and Cents, um, which we haven't read, but I'm guessing is all about um, money and stuff. So maybe one a transition. Um, sort of story is from the upside of rationality and the bigger bonuses don't necessarily lead to better performance and often it's the the inverted you where yes for a little period of time more rewards equal better performance but then it gets to a point where those increased rewards um, hinder performance that's right and, and it's basically about stress mm. right and and bonuses if, if you think about the theory of bonuses what what are we saying when we give people bonuses we say we hired people but they don't care enough mm. Right. For some reason, the salary that we give them is not enough. Yeah. The ability to keep their job is not good enough. The fact that their boss cares about it, the fact that their colleagues depend on them, yeah. all of that is not enough. <laughs> what we really need is to put a little bit more money, and then mm. these people would think about this money all the time, and by thinking all this money all the time, they will work harder. Mm. These are some serious <laughs> set of, <laughs> of uh, assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Um, and... And you can ask whether it's right, right? Mm-hmm. So in what kind of jobs would you like people to take 20% of their mental activity mm-hmm. and think about bonuses instead of thinking <laughs> about their job? Yeah, exactly. Right? So you could say maybe it's good for jobs that require no mental capacity. Mm. But, but imagine you're going to a dedic- delicate uh, brain surgery. Mm. And just before you go into surgery, you, you get a chance to chat with a physician who's the surgeon. And you get a chance to tell them, hey, if you do a really good job, I'll give you $100,000. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and, and if you do a bad job, I already hired a hitman that is waiting for you uh, outside of the operating room. Yeah. And how, how good will that surgery go? It's a fair bit of pressure. That's for it's, sure. Right? Yeah. It's, it's a lot of pressure. And, and now, you know, under what condition do we want to create uh, to create? A pressure. You know, mostly we actually want to create what's called a state of f- flow, where mm. people are fully engaged and thinking and creative and so on. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting because I think that the, the metaphor we have for bonuses is a metaphor of physical labor, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you want me to, I don't know, lift some weights or run or jump or do something. Mm. And if I care more, I could do more. Yeah. But, but can we really incentivize creativity? Mm and memory, and thoughtfulness. <coughs> Completely unclear, actually. Um, it's mostly damaging. Yeah. Right, so, so you know, you, you can see how, uh, like, imagine it was you. And I said, oh, you can get the bonus of uh, up to 10 times your salary uh, if you'll mm. do better. You'll opt for that system because you can yeah. get paid oh, so yeah, much yeah, more. Sure. And, <laughs> and it feels more fair. Right. I'm not just getting paid an outrageous <laughs> amount. It's a bonus, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's yeah. you know, promising. <laughs> so, so we've created this system, which I think is about bypassing fairness rather than about the real reason. But, but I think it's incredibly, incredibly mm. inefficient way of allocating uh, resources for, for performance. And mm. anyway, lots of things to say about that. Yeah. Mm. So in predictively irrational, we talk about social norms and, and market norms. So should they be giving bonuses in the form of social norms instead? Okay. So, so you know, when we talk about bonuses, mm. 
um, there's all kinds of reasons for bonuses, right? It's a very murky kind of uh, logic. Uh, one thing is from an accounting perspective, right? So imagine I, uh, we all run a company, and we just don't know how successful the company would be. So we don't want to promise everybody a fixed salary. We want to do some revenue sharing at the end of the year. That's, that's a very reasonable way to allocate salaries, to say, we're just not sure. Yeah. We'll see how the company does, and we give more if we make more money. That's, that's perfectly fine. Then we have this notion of incentivizing behavior. Mm. We say what we want you to do is to think about the bonus all the time and therefore mm. behave in a better way. That one, I think, there's just no evidence gotcha. that, mm. this is, that this is working. And, and, and this is where actually social rewards do work, yeah. uh, do work much better, right? So um, now, now imagine, imagine that the, the question, the, the real question of motivation has to do with goodwill. Mm. Right, and as we move through the knowledge economy, we depend more and more on good on goodwill. And ask yourself, how do you get goodwill of people? And money is actually always backward looking; it doesn't create goodwill, right? If you if you give people a big bonus, to what extent do you create a sense of gratitude? Not that much. You create a sense of entitlement. You create a sense of here, I've done this. You're paying me back. What what creates forward-looking goodwill? That has to do with human relationship, mm. uh, feeling of reciprocity, all of those mm. things that come much more with gifts mm. than with than with money. By the way, they could come with money, right? So, for example, imagine you worked for me, and I I'm guessing you don't have kids. No, no. no. <laughs> uh, so, but imagine that I said, okay, I'm going to create a fund for you for your future kids. Mm-hmm. And for for their college education, that's forward looking, right? If I mm. paid you, I said, "Oh, you did so well last year. Here's a bonus." It's backward looking. You don't feel you owe me anything. I'm, I just paid mm. you back what I owed ah. you, right? Yeah. Mm. It's, it doesn't create any sense of, "Oh my goodness, this guy who who we work for is incredibly kind and generous, and we want him to do yeah. to do better." It basically is a sense of entitlement. Yeah. Okay, you know, I got this, and, yeah. and you paid me. Um, so, so gifts. And forward-looking mm. uh, ways of, of distributing uh, whatever whatever it is is uh, cr- creating higher motivation. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm thinking: is there like uh, is there a point where it gets too far? Where then I'm thinking: if you say you're going to pay for my kids' college, where that's twenty twenty five years down the track, and I think, oh, I've got to hang around here for twenty five years now. Am I too <laughs> deep? Too deep in there? So it's not it's not about this rational thinking about what what is it. Mm. Is about the sense that I care about your long-term well-being. Mm, nice, right? So, so, so think about what what the signal is, right? You work for somebody, and you say this person cares about what will happen to me in twenty-five years. Mm. <clears throat> That's actually an amazing signal, right? Yeah. So, imagine mm. you were you had kids who were seventeen; they are going to college next year. Mm. It won't be that long in the future, <laughs> yeah. but so you would say, "Oh, this," but but Definitely, it's actually yeah. for you when you don't have kids. Mm. It's extra thinking about your long yeah. term, and, it, yeah. and it's a it's a signal on the fact that I plan for you to be around for mm. twenty five more years. Yeah, right. So, nice. so you're you're right. From a rational perspective, you say, "Why do I care?" Mm. But it it puts a relationship in a really long term perspective. Mm. Nice. The, one of the other um, money things from another book uh, we did, uh, well known, "The Richest Man in Babylon," in that where uh, necessary expenses. Uh, seem to always go up and our idea of what we think is necessary goes up. So when we're living at home, necessary expenses might be uh, lunch at 
at university or college a couple of times a week maybe uh, when we move out of home then necessary becomes rent and maybe then it's eating out once a week and then as we yeah. get a pay rise a necessary expense is breakfast twice a week or a fancy lunch um, does that sort of tie into this uh, we're rationalizing up that oh, I've got more money so yeah this is definitely a necessary weekly expense I have to do all the time yeah, so this, this is what is called hedonic adaptation. Mm. And it's, it's one of the things that is, it, it's, it's a huge problem. And so, first of all, let's say a good word for hedonic adaptation. Hedonic adaptation, in principle, is not a bad thing, right? So you look at um, somebody like me with a bad injury and you say, how miserable is my life? Not mm. that miserable, mm. right? Imagine that, uh, just think to yourself, what would happen if you got injured to the same degree? 70% burn, three years in hospital. Mm. How miserable do you think you'll be? People think I'll be really miserable for yeah. a really long time. And I was indeed very miserable for a relatively long time. But then things got much better. We get used to stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Even though I have pain on a daily basis, I have limitation mm -hmm. on a daily basis. Nevertheless, I got used to it. Yeah. Uh, the same thing happens with good things, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we, when good things happen to us, we say, oh, I'll really be happy. And I'll be happy for a long time. But we don't. We get yeah. happy for for a short term, and then we, then we get, get used to it. And one of the tricks of life is to figure out hedonic adaptation. Mm. Right? So uh, one thing, for example, is to make decisions between experiences and stuff. So imagine you're debating between buying a sofa and a scuba diving trip. Mm. You say, if I buy a new sofa, I'll have the sofa for 10 years. Mm. If I have a scuba diving trip, it's there for 10 days. You know, mm. what, like, how can you compare? <laughs> like 10 years to 10 days. But, but a scuba diving trip, you have a period of anticipation. Mm. Right? You probably don't want to go tomorrow. Mm. You want to go in, 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 six, yeah. in six months. There's a really nice study that says if you could get a kiss from your favorite movie star, do you want it tomorrow in a few weeks? People say in a few weeks, right? Mm. At the end of the day, it will be a kiss. But if you get to fantasize about it, <laughs> that's a good thing. So you have anticipation. Then you have the scuba trip, which is 10 days. Yeah. But then you have your whole life to mm. think back about this. Yeah. You've acquired a new skill. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you, have, you have memories and so on. So, so what happens with the sofa is you get it and you get used to it. Mm. Right? Whereas for a scuba diving trip, you don't get used to the same mm. degree. So one, one trick is to basically fight hedonic adaptation by buying experiences rather than stuff. The second thing is to, is to change your spending slowly. So imagine mm -hmm. that you are college students and you graduate and you get a real job. Mm. And now you can get a new TV and a new sofa and a new apartment. Yeah. And, 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 and. Yeah. Yeah. how should you space it? The right answer is probably get one thing every six months. Mm. Right? And, and that, will that, be, that will be a much, <laughs> uh, a much, a much better approach. So... Um, or, or here's another example. I fly an awful lot. Uh, I mostly fly not coach. Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, some flights are long. Like mm. I flew here yeah, it's a long from way. Mexico <laughs> to <laughs> Texas uh, was, you know, quite a few hours. And then from Texas to here was, I think, 16, mm. 17 hours. <clears throat> that's a long, that's a long flight. Yeah. Um, but, but imagine that you fly not terribly long distances, you fly um, coach or not coach, uh, coach or business. And at some point, flying business, you just get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah. You're paying much more, yeah. but it doesn't give you much, yeah. uh, much joy. Yeah. 
So, and, and then if you one day move to coach, you know, for whatever reason, you feel like, you know, the world is, is unjust for some, for some reason. This is terrible. And so, so we do, I, I think, by the way, wine is another example. So you, you brought this bottle of wine. Let's just assume it's a cheap wine. Uh, <laughs> Fair? That'd be correct. <laughs> yes. Depends on you. Depends on you. It's yeah. fine. It's good Australian good wine. For, good for us. We haven't, we haven't adapted too high yet. So. Yeah. That's right. No, but it's a good, it's a good strategy, right? Um, you start buying expensive wine. Soon enough, you're not getting necessarily more pleasure from it. You just get used to a different level. So, so here, here to cheap wines. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> Phenomenal. Um, as we wrap it up now, Dan, is there any, any books that you, you recommend or have been influential on, on your life? A lot. Um, so, so on the on the non-research side, um, my my three favorite uh, writers are probably Jerome K. Jerome. Have you read Three Men in a Boat? Nope. It's an amazing an amazing book. Um, I mean, he died many years ago, but but it's a it's a great. Uh, P.J. Woodhouse, mm-hmm. uh, completely inappropriate these days with, with the issues of sexual harassment and the relationship between men and women, and Douglas Adams, <laughs> mm-hmm. and okay. which you probably read, right? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. No, I haven't, I haven't read, read it either. It's really? Movie okay. No, 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 you can't. So those are kind of my, my three favorite... Um, I, 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 it's not just fiction writers, but, but these are people who basically kind of give you a perspective on life mm. through mm. through fiction mm. uh, which which I find incredibly um, useful then um, getting closer to re- research I would say uh, Viktor Frankl mm-hmm. you know, uh, the Holocaust survivor wrote quite a lot about meaning mm. right and uh, I think that the, the Holocaust is kind of an amazing uh, lens. I mean, there's lots of lots of things to say about the Holocaust, but as an amazing lens to think about how were people able, under those conditions, to to find mm. purpose in life, mm. and some some were mm. right in these incredible uh, conditions. Uh, and I think it's a kind of that's that's incredible mm. uh, perspective on you know a, a lens and. You know, I think sometimes so, sometimes research is like a magnifying glass to look at something with with extra power. And I think the the Holocaust, I mean, there's lots of terrible things, but but it gives you this uh, incredible mm. uh, perspective. And then if if I think about kind of the, the third category, just kind of uh, modern <coughs> social science, uh, one of the books. Uh, I really love is called the Invisible Gorilla. Uh, you must have seen the, seen the, the videos. Yeah. The videos, but but the book the book is also uh, fantastic. There's yeah. a lot of a lot of interesting things on kind of the perceptual uh, part. Um, so it's a book I, a book I really love. And there's another book I like called Why Smart People Make Stupid Money Mistakes, uh, which is which is also a great great book. So nice. That's that's my list for. That's a that's yeah. a good list. We've only we only tick off one. In search for many, we can tick off, but the rest are on the two read pile. Um, the other, just one other thing was the uh, uh, Danny Kahneman, um, two thousand two Nobel Prize, yeah. and Richard Thaler, just the, the two thousand seventeen Nobel Prize. Yeah. We read Thinking Fast and Slow, not Nudge yet. Did you, um, did you read the whole book? Yeah, 
Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what does that mean? It's a long, uh, a little difficult book. I must say that uh, the 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 books where it's you know this was our uh, this was our study we did and blah 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 and then this was the learnings. Uh, Thing Fast Society had a lot of uh, behind the scenes stuff that maybe wasn't so necessary. Was I feel like. Uh, predictably rational and all of your books did it much more gracefully uh, in a way that was certainly enjoyable and got to the point um, <laughs> in a very nice way um, but yeah so I guess that so obviously Richard Thaler just won the Nobel Prize recently so yeah. is uh, is this sort of field or this idea of behavioral uh, economics sort of becoming more in the social consciousness I think so so I think we had um this is terrible to say, but you know Australia were not was not touched by the two thousand seven mm. two thousand eight financial yeah. crisis. The rest of the world was yeah. right. You were isolated Correct. in some totally. magical magical way. Keep blowing up the bubble. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I think it was a really important time for behavioral economics because up to that point, you would say, "Oh, people are irrational here and there," but people say, "Yes, but in the stock market, you know, where it really counts, everybody will be <laughs> yeah. perfectly rational." And here we saw that that people were not and. Mm. And I don't think we convinced uh, many people who are, you know, doing mm. finance or mm. uh, standard economists in Chicago. But um, I think public opinion has really shifted, mm. right? To basically say there was this such a glaring problem that n- almost nobody saw, right? The, the people who saw it were very, very few. Mm. Um, I think kind of changed public opinion. So I mm. think that behavioral economics is, is, is kind of winning the the public sentiment mm. uh, idea, uh, not necessarily winning the battle in every economics department mm. in the world. Are, you know, economics is a religion, right? Every every time you have something you call a science that starts with very strong assumptions that you're not willing to to question, <laughs> yeah. it's not a science. Religion. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's religion, right? So if you say we assume that people are perfectly rational, that they are transitive and they mm. have complete preferences and, and mm. so on. It just means you're not scientific mm. uh, about it. So so I think, you know, if if you have strong assumptions, nothing would mm. would convince you. And and we have we have some of those people. And and the truth is that economic theory is very beautiful. Mm. Right? The, when economic theory started, like the rational theory started, uh, everybody understood it was as if Mm-hmm. It was basically, let's assume that people are perfectly <laughs> rational and let's see where it could take us. Yeah. Mm. And that's a great exercise to do, right? We could say, let's assume uh, everybody uh, cares about the future and mm. let's see what what system we would be like. You, you play, have you ever played Simant or SimCity or one of those things? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Right? You could say, let's assume that people actually loved each other. What would it be? If people, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's, it's nice games yeah. to play uh, what if. But then then the mathematical appeal mm. of it became so powerful that mm. people stopped saying it's a what if. They say, oh, it's real. <laughs> you know, in, in the beginning, it was yeah. what if that then became to it's true. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is the real, the real problem with, with economics. And, and the other thing is you know, economics is both a descriptive theory and a prescriptive theory. Right? It's descriptive in the sense mm. that it says, here's how people behave, much mm. like sociology, psychology, and so on. And it's prescriptive in the sense that it says, and here's how you should behave. Should, yeah. And that's where economics, I think, is way, way too arrogant. Mm. Right? Where, where what my hope is that behavioral economics would become kind of just empirical investigation of how we should lead our lives. Mm. Right? So you say, how should we do policy for global warming? 
we have a few candidates. Let's look at what sociology has to say, psychology, mm. economics, all of those. Mm. And let's experiment. Let's not be as arrogant to say we know all the answers. Let's just experiment and, mm. and try it out. We want to create schools. Let's come different theories and let's, let's try it out. And, and I think my, my hope is that behavioral economics would not be about attacking economics. It will be about applied social science, mm. right? Social science is the basic building blocks for designing society. Let's be not dogmatic, mm. not arrogant, admit that we might be wrong, and experimental. I love it. That, oh. was, probably, that was probably my hesitation at, at uni. Oh, let's assume there's two islands. One makes rice and one makes bananas, and they only trade with each other. Yes. Oh, it was very restrictive. Um, we could talk for hours. We've got four pages here. I think we got through about three dot points. But uh, I guess where can where can people find you? We watched your phenomenal Netflix doco the other night. Well, um, thank is, you. Is a good place to start. That was amazing. And, yeah. Where else? I, can I can't take you? credit for that. It was the director and producer who is who is so amazing. So I have a website. Uh, just my name, Dan Ariely, D A N A R I E L Y dot com. Uh, the documentary is available on Netflix. Dishonesty: The Truth About Lies. And I think also it's very good. We also have um, a, a website for the Dishonesty Project uh, that includes more material. Mm -hmm. And we even had a, we created a confession booth where people could come and confess. And we have some of those uh, <laughs> videos. By the way, it's amazing. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. The kind of things people confess. I'll tell you after we <laughs> finish this about some of those things. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Phenomenal. Um, yeah. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure. Hey guys, Adam and Adam here, just reminding you of our competition we have going on. So you can win every single book that we read and review this season. So some absolute juggernauts, three potential ways that you can win. Yep, so the first thing you can do is leave us a review on iTunes. The second is to fill out our survey at whatyouwillearn.com slash survey. And number three, just buy a, buy a book and send us an email of just showing that you bought a book. Yep, so we, uh, we, we love books hope you do too you can win all these books for either yourself or to, to give away to people and change a few lives uh, basically you can enter once or you can enter three times yep get stuck in 